it's a really hard question to answer. How do you know? I think we all know. I think there's always a gut feeling where you're like, we need someone to come in and help us do product or we need someone to help us do ops or we need someone to help us take this company to the next level. And I think if you've been having a conversation of, we'll just keep, we'll just keep trying a little bit longer, it's equivalent of let's just keep ramming our heads against a wall a little bit longer and see what happens. Like you might eventually push through the other side, but you always know you know, if you've been stagnant for too long, you know, if you've plateaued in growth or, you know, you're having the same conversations in management meetings about pricing or product mm. or customers all the time, that's when you need to get someone else in. Hello, you're listening to People Building Businesses, the podcast from YBF Ventures. If you haven't listened before, we delve deep into the journey of some of the most interesting companies and entrepreneurs in Australia and beyond. Before we talk to today's guest, I want to tell you a bit about YBF Ventures. Our mission is to help startups to scale, scale-ups to succeed, and corporates to innovate. We have spaces in Melbourne and Sydney, and if you want to find out more, head over to ybfventures.com. On this episode, we're talking to Sharon Taylor, the CEO of Omni Studio, which is an audio management solution for podcasters and radio stations. It gives podcasters and radio stations all they need to go from on-air to online in seconds. No need for hours of work at the studio. Omni's journey started way back in 2011, and it's grown into a powerhouse in the industry, boasting clients like CBS Local, Triple M, Mashable, Channel 7, Mamma Mia, The Hit Network, and many, many more. That success resulted in an acquisition earlier this year by Los Angeles-based digital audio tech and advertising company Triton Digital, which is in turn owned by the EW Scripps Company, one of the largest media conglomerates in the U.S. I'm looking forward to talking to Sharon. I've known her since 2012, 20, well, early days actually, and um, she's an enigma, uh, a riddle wrapped in a mystery in an, an enigma. Um, People Building Businesses is also hosted on Omni Radio. That's www.omni.fm. And Omni has also been a member at YBF since 2011, so a long-time YBF member. Sharon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. You've definitely done your homework. I've done a lot of homework, yeah. but the interesting thing is I know nothing about you having known you for such a long time. No, really? No, you know me. I only know you as the, the CEO of Omni, and, yeah. uh, which is interesting, actually. And that's the only way you ever will know me. Awesome. Well, hopefully not after this podcast. Yeah, let's delve deep. Let's pull off all the layers. Super deep. So yeah. we'll start with a in-depth question, I guess. Um, I always start this podcast by asking people about where they grew up and to talk a bit about their childhood. So if that's a, uh, a cake you want to open up, a layer of a cake that you want to open up, please feel free. That's quite a cake. Yeah, so I grew up in Perth in Western Australia, sure. the West Coast, as opposed to those of us here now in Melbourne, Sydney. Uh, and I had, I guess you would say, a reasonably average upbringing. Uh, which ended up with me leaving home when I was 16 and going out on my own and deciding to be independent as opposed to kind of family-bound. So, yeah, so I don't talk about my childhood or my upbringing a lot. I'm, that's, the, that's the part of me that is kind of my history. Wow, okay. Yeah. And um, 16 is a, a young age to set out by yourself. Was it a scary experience for you? You could say that I should have done it earlier. Wow. <laughs> um, it was okay. Like I had a great network of people around me. I grew up with a lot of great friends and their families were amazing to me and so that made it I think a lot easier it instilled in me from a young age that 
you should do what is best for you regardless of how hard it is and uh yeah you move through things pretty quickly but yeah 16 was young i suppose that's awesome and you know as i interview a lot of these guests uh, you can sort of see patterns in how they run their companies and how they approach relationships and people and a lot of it traces back to their early days so what happened when you stepped out at 16 did you continue your education or did you go into into work what was your first step? Yeah, so I kept going with my education. I was really lucky. I went to a very good school and um, I actually had a musical scholarship which allowed me to kind of go through and finish off, you know, year 11 and 12, which was wow. good. Um, that is now lost to me completely. Do not ask me to... But you're in podcasting, which is somewhat related. Yeah, that is, yep, correct. There is a dotted line, I suppose, there. Uh, and so, no, so I was really lucky. I knew that. I knew that my life could take two paths and... I'm probably a little bit more on the callous side about this, but I think that you get a choice with everything and you can choose to be overridden by adversity or you can choose to overcome it. And that's probably really a simplistic, you know, mindset to have. Um, But I knew that if I wanted my life to be better than what it had been for the first 16 years, I had to finish school, I had to get to uni. You know, there are things that I need to check off to make sure that it went in the direction I wanted it to go to. So, yeah, so school continued, which was challenging. Like you're a 16-year-old girl and you have all the normal emotions that are flowing through you and then you add this kind of layer to stuff um, and that was interesting. Uh, but, yeah, I ended up finishing school, went to uni um, and got into the workforce. That's incredible. And you went to Curtin University uh, doing a Bachelor of Commerce in Public Relations, which is not what I would expect from you, to be honest. Yeah. Public Relations. Well, I, I was in hospitality from a really young age. Like, I started out managing cafes when I was 17 and, you know, then got into events and I had this thing stuck in my head that I was going to be a hotelier. And I thought, I'm definitely, you know, I'm going to get to the head of, like, the Hyatt or, you know, I had those kind of delusions of grandeur sure. or I guess you'd call them for lack of a better term um and so when I first started at uni I just knew I needed to get a degree and so I started out with a bachelor of commerce with HR and IR and psychology I think I'd started doing psych because I thought it was going to help me in career land but the reality is that I just wanted to figure out what was going on in my own head based on everything that I'd gone through and so that was a poor choice that was a misstep and then I ended up pulling out of uni for a while, working full time. And then I ended up going back into uni, doing a tourism and marketing degree right. um, and got to the near end of that and decided that actually I didn't want to be a hotelier. It was it was an up and down time for me. I really, I was working full time. And so I didn't know that I needed to finish uni and there was just a whole pile of stuff going on in my head. So I ended up yeah finishing off with a Bachelor of Commerce, Marketing um, and PR was my major. What about the hotel industry pushed you away from it? Because it sounds like you studied it for a while, you even worked in the industry and then sort of kind of went, nope, not for me, almost. Well, I never really jumped into it with both feet fully. Like I think I was finishing off my degree and I was running a cafe in Perth and a guy came in every day to get his flat white and we just struck up a conversation. I was in the last, I don't know, eight months, 12 months of my uni degree, I think, at the time. And after a you know, a few months ongoing, he was like, what are you doing? Like, shouldn't, what are you, are you you'd be great in business kind of thing. I was like, wow. mm, would I? No, I couldn't imagine myself working at a desk. Like I, I wanted to be around people and do that kind of thing. Anyway, so long story short, I ended up taking a part-time admin job, like, and learn about my job and, you know, okay. doing semi-reception things. And then I just took a left turn out of it. I think I got into business and it was 
something that I love doing. He had a tech company and it just got its talons in me and soon hospitality was, you know, a distant memory. Thing of the past. Yeah. So, yeah, what happened after you graduated university? You got a job at Sika and Napa? Am I, am I saying that right? Yeah, Sika? it wasn't called that uh, at, at the start. It was, But, yeah, it ended up being rebranded just as I was leaving to Sitcha and Napa. Um, two Latin words, I don't know. Like how do, <laughs> how do any of us come up with any of our, like, I mean, how is Omni called Omni? And it's questions. really just because you throw a dart at a dartboard and you're like, yeah, that name sticks, let's do that. Um, and so, yeah, so I did that for eight and a half years and wow. I started out in their admin team with, you know, five people and then grew that out to about 21, 22, I think, at the end. It was a few different divisions, managed services, web, you know, design um, and the rest of it and, yeah, that was how I got my first start into IT, I suppose. Wow. And how did your role change within that company over time? You went from office admin to then taking on more responsibility as time grew by? Yeah, so I started out like on the admin account side, real figuring out how my job works and, you know, just acting as reception. And then as time went on and we needed to slot more people in and around and the team kept growing, uh, I ended up like looking after the admin team of people. I kind of was the intermediary between the techs and clients. I got to kind of like an operations role. And so I looked after all the HR, finance, all the rest of it. Um, we had like a SaaS side business called Appointments Online. Um, and I ended up doing some sales and marketing for that. So it was really, it was one of those roles that let you do as much or as little as you wanted. And it was really kind of directionless and you just, it was just, do things and you went off and you did things kind of like being a ceo yeah kind of yeah except no board and no you know other people around you and above you but yeah it was definitely forging i suppose okay yeah and do you have any key takeaways from your time doing that eight years is a lot of time to spend in a company yeah it is and i think i probably stayed for the wrong reasons okay. in the end at the end of the day there's a huge part of my personality from my childhood that clings to family-like structures and for me work and a team is a lot like a family-like structure and so I think if I was being completely honest with myself and you I would say that I probably stayed too long because I valued the human connection part of it right. and it's very difficult for me to see moving to another team that has that same kind of connection okay um but it was huge the takeaways were from a work perspective take every single opportunity that you possibly can there were a lot of times as well where i mean i was young i was like 22 when i started with that company and a lot of fear and a lot of yeah but you know if i put people underneath me what will i do i won't if i this is my job now and if i hire someone to do reception what will i do after that but you really kind of have to trust the people above you and keep pushing yourself through that. I learned a lot of that when I was there. That's incredible. And you're gonna to have to fill me in as to the next step of your journey because after you you work at Sitcha Napa, I know that you moved from Perth to Melbourne mm -hmm. and I know that you then joined Omni Studio as firstly the head of operations before you grew into the CEO role. Yep. Why Perth to Melbourne? I'd always wanted, so, I have a best friend who I went to school with from when we were like six and she moved to Melbourne along with her brother who you know, Darcy Norton, um, a long while ago. And so I, you know, from 23, 24 onwards, you know, I would come over here once, twice a year, hang out with these people, be enamoured by the culture and the work ethic and the startup scene and always wanted to do a lot more with my career and I always wanted to take that kind of next step. But 
you know, that I, I stayed in Perth for those reasons that I mentioned before in terms of like having a good job and, and seeing that as like a family kind of unit around me in lieu of an, my own family unit. And so it was always in my mind that I wanted to come over. I just never knew how to do it. And as all good decisions, it ended up being made over a few pints at a pub when I was over uh, once. And I was just like, you know what? I need to do it. Like if I'm not going to jump, I have to jump. Like I can't let this fear of it hold me back. And so I came back to Perth after a trip over here, walked into my boss's office with a letter and said, this is what I'm doing. I'll give you until the end of January. I gave him like three months notice and I just knew I had to do it. So yeah, I ended up coming over without anything really lined up. Wow. Just assuming that I was employable or hoping that I was employable, maybe a better, you know, and so far it hasn't been proven wrong. so that was interesting and then I got off the plane uh, my friend picked me up and he had known of an opportunity at Omni. They'd had a board meeting where it was made clear that a bit of operational controls were probably needed at the company. So I think I landed on the Saturday and then on the Sunday I was having an interview at a chicken and beer place with, you know, the old CEO and Monday I walked into this office of 13 people on an eight-week contract to help them with like P&Ls and cash flows and pricing and just kind of the lay of the land from an operational point of view, which was kind of my wheelhouse. And that turned into a full-time head of ops role, which then eventually after three months turned into interim CEO, which then turned into full-time CEO. That's incredible. So you went from not knowing if you would have a job to getting a job as head of operations in two days. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. And yep. it was Darcy, um, YBS co-founder, one of YBS co-founders who found you the gig at, uh, at Omni Studio. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, That's well, he, he wasn't on their board. It was um, another person at YBF that was on their board, um, but that he had known about it. And they were like, well, we know this person coming over, so maybe just let's see what happens and the rest as they say is history that's amazing that's that's yeah i never knew it's that something amazing that's, that's is a crazy story it. yeah it's nuts yeah. yeah and i i i being eight and a half years at your last job you forget what it's like to have a new job and i used to love that feeling and i always likened it to you know when you were kind of watching a black and white tv show and then all of a sudden you see it remastered in color and that is what happens when you one day you take a job and it's all like blurring. You have no idea what you're doing. And that one day you're like, oh, I get it. And that for me was wonderful to come back into it for Omni. And like finally suddenly understanding this industry that I had no idea about. Like I had no history in audio. I was tech through and through. Um, I remember one day, maybe like a month and a half in, there was like this uh, – we used hip chat at the time, but like the equivalent of Slack. There was a Slack conversation going on about – the company and the product and I just had no idea what was happening and I turned around to someone that was working underneath me at the time and asked a question and she just gave me the sideways look and went do you um do you know what we do at Omni I was like I do but I don't really understand the product fully and uh and yeah I had like a crash course and so there was a huge learning curve it was pretty nuts that's cool and how would you describe the first three months as Omni being head of ops in a in a startup what is that like it was pretty crazy like i startup land is a whole different beast move fast figure it out as you go lay the train tracks etc which is not hugely different to business in like small or big or medium kind of terms um there just probably is less overarching operations at times or there's less 
thought about that. It's chaotic. Thank you. That's the word that I'm looking for. It is. Uh, And they're geniuses that are able to build all the things under the sun. Like I remember you could say on a Friday night, it would be great if it could do X and then you'd come in on the Monday and the team would have been like, hey, we just fiddled with it over the weekend and it just kind of happened. Like, oh, that's amazing. But the business side of things sometimes is lacking because the focus is so heavily on product and so heavily on acquiring customers. But you find that you are loading all these customers onto like the bow of a ship. But if you don't have operational structures underneath at the base of the ship, which I have no idea what it's called, Mm. not nautical at all, um, you know, the ship can go down. And so you've got to kind of build that base in, right? And uh, I think that's kind of what lacks in startups at times. Okay. And what's it like being a head of operations in a startup? Because this was a company, this was a startup that had three founders. Mm -hmm. You had a CEO, uh, you had a head of product, I think, and a CTO as well. And then having someone come in as head of operations, what was that dynamic like? Because oftentimes for startups, it's kind of a culture shock when the founders suddenly have someone else coming in and dictating or taking control of certain parts of the company. Yeah, it's hard, right? I mean, this is your business. This is the thing that you built and it's your product and it's your tech. And I think it takes a certain type of person to hear feedback or to not be scared of that change. You know, it's like I was saying, you know, you you hire people underneath you and you worry about what you'll do next. And it's kind of the same when you bring someone in to handle or to carve out a set of responsibilities. You have to trust that that person knows what they're doing and that it's in the best interest of the company. But it's a lot of you are that business, I think, is is the startup mentality and it's it's hard to let go of some of that. So, yeah, it is a challenge. It's a bit of push and pull, a bit of friction, but you know, when done well, it is pretty, pretty positive. That's awesome. And, you know, I I guess the next part is the difficult part of the conversation being, you know, you went from head of operations to CEO in in three months. Mm -hmm. So something must have happened, which required you from going into that role. Care to share with us a bit about that story? I know it might be a bit sensitive to some. No, I think, I think, From my personal perspective, from what I've seen of startups, it's usually, you know, one or two incredibly technical people, you know, and then that second or third role is someone that came up through like a business development team or, you know, and can take the company so far. And then there's always like every single startup that you've seen that goes from like startup to scale up, there's been some sort of management or leadership change or shuffle at some point. And so I think there was just a look around the room at one point with the four of us um, and the board and our advisors that were like, maybe maybe it's time for that, for that swap out. Um, and the CEO had a line of sight to another opportunity in San Francisco and it just made the most sense for all of us at that point to go like tag, let's pass the baton. You know, I promise to look after your interest in the company and I can, you know, help you. I can help make this be worth more. And so that was kind of a nice feeling at that time. Yeah, and we see this a lot with um, some of the big success stories as well. Google handing off the baton to Eric Schmidt, who came in as the CEO yeah. of the company to grow, to grow it. So what was it like suddenly finding yourself in, in the shoes of being the CEO of a company? It was challenging, you know, and I think because it was such a short space of time from coming both into the startup scene, into Melbourne, but also knowing about this very specific and nuanced industry, which is audio, podcast, broadcast. It was a lot of on the side learning at the same time as, oh, now I am, you know, learning corporate governance and I'm learning how to interact with my board. And, you know, I would be 
completely honest and say that the CEO swap over wasn't handled overly well at our, you know, level. Um, and, you know, that led to some issues as well, like, and a lot of mess that we had to kind of clean up as we went through, um, as well as kind of, I was lucky that I already knew the staff and that I had their support. And I think that's one thing that's really crucial, like with any role that you come into or any role that you take over, it's the people around you and the people you know, next to you and even above you that make you who you are in that role. Like you can only go so far being, I'm a very much like a sledgehammer leader. And mm. so I just see the path and I want it, but to get the backing of the people around you and to bring them along for that trip as well, I think was really important for me. So my follow on question has two parts and I think they're somewhat interrelated. The first question is what advice would you have for founders who find themselves in a position of needing to bring in an external CEO? And my second question is, what advice do you have for the external CEO coming in, working with the founders of the company? I think for the first question, if you're founders and you have an inkling that it's time to bring in that external CEO or your board is telling you, go with it. Like just trust and have the conversation and see where it goes. Just having the conversation doesn't mean that suddenly it's going to be detrimental to your business. I think there has to be a reason that you brought these people in and around and above you and you know, you have to make that leap as a team. And if you don't make it as a team, that's probably where you're going to have some discourse and some problems. Mm. Um, find the right person and know what it is that you want to do yourselves after you bring that person in. So who is it that is going to be moving into which role and how is that role going to be communicated out to the staff, to investors mm. is crucial figure out your messaging early, figure out what you're going to say to that investment pool and pick your timing for it as well. Maybe don't do it as you're about to close a bridge funding round. Yep. <laughs> that, can be, that can be problematic. Yep. Um, and then for the incoming CEO, know, know what you're getting into, both in a good and a bad way, and don't, don't not take the time. Oh, double negatives. Ugh. Don't do take, take the time to understand the wider team and the board and the advisors and the history of the company and know what you can add and be honest with yourself about what you can add and be honest with yourself and with the founding team about what you would struggle with and your concerns. When does a startup know that it's the right time to bring an external CEO? Oh. Sometimes people live in denial. Sometimes people don't want to accept the reality that they need external help. Yeah, it's been interesting. So there are a lot of people that have been in the startup industry a lot longer than me, yourself included. From my arguably short time in it at the moment and based on what it is I see in Australia versus I spend a lot of my time in the States for our company because most of our clients are over there. Mm -hmm. And what the difference I feel between founding teams in Australia versus America, are America are more, Americans are faster to go, this hasn't worked, you know, or faster to go let's switch because this what we're doing at the moment isn't working whereas Australians and I don't know if it's because of the size of the opportunities here or or what it is but it seems that people hold on to things a little bit maybe longer than they should or uh, until a point of no return kind right. of comes yeah. oh we'll just keep trying it's just around the corner and I think you need to be very honest with yourself about when to make a pivot and not make it too late or when to bring in an, an external person and not have it happen too late. So that's not an answer to your question because it's a really hard question to answer. How do you know 
I think we all know. I think there's always a mm. gut feeling where you're like, we need someone to come in and help us do product or we need someone to help us do ops or we need someone to help us take this company to the next level. And I think if you've been having a conversation of we'll just keep, we'll just keep trying a little bit longer, it's equivalent of let's just keep ramming our heads against a wall a little bit longer and see what happens. Like you might eventually push through the other side but you always know – you know, if you've been stagnant for too long, you know, if you've plateaued in growth or, you know, you're having the same conversations in management meetings about pricing or product mm. or customers all the time, that's when you need to get someone else in. You have to be introspective enough to acknowledge that it's happening. Correct. Yeah. But you get so caught up in your day to day and in your spin and yeah, it is, it's a challenge, which is why you need the right advisors and investors around you as well. And why you need a incredibly activated and focused board. You know, like we had a reasonably disconnected board at times over the course of our company history and I think it would have been different earlier on if they hadn't been. And I say that knowing that it all worked out amazingly well and we couldn't have hoped for a better outcome and those challenges that we had have been great lessons for the next thing that we all might go and do. But, yeah, it was. there were times I was like, oh, just a little bit more connection, guys, would be great. (laughs) Yep. And um, one of the things that I recall in the early days of you being CEO was that Omni hadn't quite figured out the product market fit just yet. Omni didn't start out as the product it is today. It started out as an aggregated tool to pull in Spotify and all these other tools. And along the way, it evolved multiple times. But when you stepped in as CEO, it, it seemed like one of the big tasks was to figure out how to create something that people wanted. So how did you get the company to that point of discovery Uh, of turning on the light bulb for that company. I was really lucky that there were people in Omni that I guess had been beating that drum for a little while. They just needed a voice. They just needed someone to be new to the company, to hear them, to look at all the pieces on the table, to objectively, without having been in it for all those years and months, look at it and go, yes, this, this, this and this, and you're correct, and yes, I hear what you're saying, and kind of move that that forward. Um, I think... I think fear was a huge part of of Omni for a little while, like the worry that if you didn't pick the right price point or the worry that if you didn't have the right messaging, you'd blow it all. But that's so much worse than just trying something because you and you've got customers knocking on your door, asking for pricing, asking for all these things, you know, you you have to answer back. You have to kind of say those things. So we were led luckily by people below us around us the customer base like we've always had a really engaged client base like we built the product with them in mind and with their feedback and so you just have to open your ears and kind of listen then act quickly on that feedback and be prepared with a plan b in case it in case it doesn't work so in a way you enabled what was already there to to flourish and have a voice and that's probably why having an external person come in sometimes is so incredibly helpful because you you do bring that outside perspective into the company that never had before yeah and just a level of like my career prior i'd done these things and i'd known you know again going back to your question about when do you get an external ceo in and what their cv looks like and have they have they already overcome the challenges or tick the boxes on the things that you need to overcome and tick the box on and there's a level of trust that comes with that that goes, hey, we can roll out pricing and it'll be fine or, hey, we can like fully pivot to a B2B play as opposed to when I came on board there was still a foot in like the consumer with the Omni radio product and then the business with the Omni studio product. We can switch to this because the data is saying that that's going to be the thing that makes us the money and where our success lies. And so just that confidence and to know 
that you have a skill set that if it did slightly go off the rails, you could kind of get it back pretty quickly. Do you think this decisiveness and risk-taking attitude stems from your upbringing as well? No. Yes and no. I think that I think that if you go through certain things, it puts into perspective the wor- the worst possible outcome. Like if if I made a misstep in business, was someone going to pick me up and throw me into a wall? And that is genuinely something that I still struggle with and I still think about sometimes. Like that's ingrained in me and it takes me a little bit to go, oh, actually it should be fine. Like if we if we fail here, you know, obviously there are levels of failure in business and we went through that in 2016 at Omni as well. But I wouldn't say that I am a risk averse person at all I definitely think that the founders of Omni have something in them that I don't in terms of that stepping out and starting a company what I have built up is a trust in myself and a trust in my skill set and knowing that there are levels of terrible things that can happen in your life and if you get a price wrong on a product arguably that's probably going to be okay so it sounds like you've weathered some difficulty in the company as well. You've managed to overcome all this adversity to eventually get to the point where you've sold the company, obviously. But what were some highlights during your time as CEO? Omni? Highlights? Were there, were there any near-death mid-lights. experiences? Yeah, so 2016 was a tough year for us. We, we call it the fire year uh-huh. where we would come into the company on a daily basis and I, I shit you not, there would be conversations like, so where are the flames at today? Is it like you know, searing inferno or just a dull roar. Uh, And that went on for a long time and that was challenging. And I, we're lucky, like we have two founders at that company that stayed when everyone else would have left and a team of people that stayed. Like we, the three of us went off salary for six months to make sure that we could keep paying our staff and it was a challenge. And that, again, based on those choices that I talked about, the fork, that was the thing that made us go, we don't want to rely on funding. We need to be profitable. We need to, you know, have cash flow positivity. We need to build a business that means that this never happens again because we're having daily conversations with our staff about how much money we had in the bank and how long we could pay them, you know, and assuring them that we would look after them, knowing as well that we had clients that everyone in our industry talks. And so, you know, it wasn't, a, it was not double negatives is something I'm really struggling with today. <laughs> um, Joe, you'll cut this out. Uh, we had clients that knew that we were on hard times and so that spread a little bit like wildfire through the industry and then we also knew that we had a fleet of staff that wanted careers in media later and if we burnt our clients because we ended up just shutting the business down, you know, we we are the tool set for some of the largest broadcasters in the world and we had had plans about what would happen if if the worst happened we would give an instance out of the system to everyone like we needed to make sure the clients were first and foremost you know there were how do you tackle the challenges of needing to sign clients so that you can get revenue get profitability at the same time as knowing that maybe you've only got 12 weeks of runway left and this is a common startup problem yeah you know and we just it was very stressful. It so was, it how, was, yeah. how do you do that? How do you sign on clients knowing that you've only got a limited runway? How do you maintain morale within a company we, when your staff know what's We happening? had tons of conversations about this. And at the end of the day, we had built a technical plan out that if the worst was to happen, we would know that we could would still support them. Like we were already on no salaries. We just went, well, if it means that we have to like work an extra couple of months 
not being paid to give them an instance of the system, then we will do that, mm. you know, and figure out how to move them off or, or other bits and pieces. I make it sound really dire and it was really it was really intense at points, but we also knew the product that we had and we knew the team that we had and we knew the invest, like we have, I mean, they're not current investors. We had some great investors that were helping us through this time and, you know, sure, limping to one, you know, pay run to another, less than ideal, but we were really lucky and we knew, I think if we knew that if it was a lost cause, it would have been different, but knowing that we had a line of sight out of it, I think, in, impacted how we tackled it as well so what was the point of inflection where the company went from being in that state to suddenly being revenue positive and you know having an extended runway i don't remember the there are two things i think that stick in my mind one was we signed cbs radio in the us which are now intercom and it was that moment where we went, we have a product that works in America, we can take the biggest broadcasters and help them with their goals and this is something that we really have. And I think that put a lot of confidence into our existing investor pool and then we had a relationship with Triton Digital back, you know, from 2015 and we had a partnership that we were forming with them and we were very lucky that that partnership strategically also turned into some funding as well. And so those conversations ongoing with their leadership team and I, knowing that if we just got the terms and everything right, we could do this kind of together, which is, I guess, where the path to this acquisition started as well. Yep. And you mentioned signing CBS as a client and Trident as a client as well. What was the process for your company to go through to go through that sales process? Was it how would you describe that sales process working with such large companies when you're a tiny, tiny startup here in Australia nonetheless, yes. trying to sign a client in the US? Yeah. I mean I think I think Australian startups or Australian company at all, if you have a global product, but if you can't get global within six to 12 months, you don't have a product. You don't have a company. I'm really sorry, but if you have a very Australian specific product, like you have a certain credit license or something that you only want to or can operate in Australia, that's totally different. If you have a, a SaaS platform that can be used by anyone around the world, like if Intercom or Pipedrive, you know, had never been able to I mean, they're American-based. Terrible example. But if they if they could only ever take their own geographical market, probably something's wrong. And so I think knowing that if you want a global presence, you have to think globally from the get-go. And so we were doing demos and meetings at 1, 2, 3 a.m. in the morning. Wow. You know, and then <laughs> they would ask you where you were and, you know, you'd say, oh, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. And then people would go, oh, God, I'm so sorry. No, no, it's fine. Because you have to make it easy to do business with you from Australia. And so whether or not that's spending, you know, five, six, seven months at a time there or whether it's quick trips back and forth like I was doing, you need to get a presence there. You need to be honest with yourself about whether the problems that you're solving for Australian businesses are the same problems that you can solve in the US. And if they are, then there's no reason why you shouldn't be over there doing it for them. Yep. That's incredible. And I think one of the things that strikes um, strikes out most to me about you, Sharon, is your incredible work ethic because you're often here super early, super late. Uh, in fact, your, your team is, period. So kudos to you and your team for uh, doing those 3 a.m. meetings. Looks like it, it turned Thank out you. well. We're very lucky now. I mean, look, it was the early days that we did them. There's still times where we do them, but we're very lucky now that we've managed to take most of that market. And so, yeah, but I don't know if you'd call it a kudos moment or a get your head checked moment. But yep. yeah, we definitely do. We work hard. So I want to talk about the acquisition. But before I get into that, 
I want to quickly circle back to what you mentioned in the beginning, and that's your need for family structures. So initially, you know, when you're working for the company, you're you're at the receiving end of being part of a structure that's already in place. Yep. What happens when you're the CEO? What's your approach to building a team and its culture? And do you find yourself putting in place those structures that you so often wanted as an employee now that you're a leader of a company? I actually don't think I do. I am... I am the type of leader that forges the path out mm. and hope that people kind of come and assume that if I'm laying the track, they'll come through on the track as well. And I'm probably a little bit more hands-off in terms of, yeah, go run that thing, go do it and come back to me, but I do less of the check-ins. Like I think I, think I have quite a lot of growth still to go if I'm being honest with myself about what kind of leader I want to become, um, I'm definitely more of like an island, I suppose, as opposed to that. Um, and I also think that just because I'm hungry for that family environment does not mean that I should put that onto the team below me. Like mm. we have a great environment at Omni and I think that goes both ways, up, down, left, right, etc. that we all know that we're there for each other and that's apparent in the culture, mm. but yeah, but I try not to be too hands-on. Yeah. Awesome. So well. jumping to acquisition now, what, what was the first moment for your company where you kind of went, okay, it's, it's time to look at acquisition or it's, you know, how, oh. how do you make that decision? Well, you're always, I mean, you're a startup, you're always for sale, right? Yep. Like you're always up for investment. For you're always funding, up for, right? yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I find that that, that was a weird thing to get my head around when I started in startups is that there are these people building these companies not so much to have good profitable companies but to get a return or you know the path is always let's that's the goal over there or unicorn status or anything like that so that's a that was a weird thing for me to wrap my head around um i think for us it was a moment where the market like our competitors it was so crowded like there are in differing levels of what we do and we were lucky because we were one of the first to do it and especially with the types of clients that we have in broadcast we were very unique today i think there's like 38 or so companies that kind of do what we do and there can be one standing at the top of the mountain and we you have to be honest about the hockey stick graph that you had, right? Like we built a great business and we turned over a good revenue, but there needed to be this next kick to to win the market. And that was either going to be in the form of not a small amount of funding or it was going to be, you know, let's, is now the time to, you know, listen to what these people are saying to us. And, you know, they've been knocking on the door for a little while and now is the time to kind of do that. And you look around and you have some honest conversations with staff and with the founders and with investors and with the board and you decide if that's the time to go. And for us it was, you know, and now with, you know, the company that we are now integrated into and the company behind us, we have a line of sight to being the biggest and baddest company for what we do. And if you don't have to focus half your time on funding or other bits and pieces, then you can really, you can really win a market, I think. How does a company find an acquirer? In your case, Triton was supposed to be a customer. Then no, became they were a strategic partner. They, partner, gotcha. Yeah, they, were, um, they helped us get more customers. Interesting. Yeah, 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 very good partner. So how did they turn from a partner to a potential acquirer? What was that process like? Well, I think, I think a strategic always sees you when they invest in you as either they're going to keep you close or they're going to 
one day keep you even closer, mm. you know, eat them or kill them, I suppose, but like work with them or acquire them. Um, I think we had talked with Triton for a long time about, you know, the ideal what if, you know, one day wouldn't it be great if, um, and it just made a lot of sense. Like we'd, we'd worked with these people for the better part of three years. We knew them, we trusted them. We saw how our business would be handled by them. We saw how our clients are already handled by them. We saw how we would integrate and help guide them in this new division. So just that was easy for us as opposed as to how do you find an acquirer? I mean, I don't know. I mean, we shopped ourselves for a little part there in 2016 uh, you just find the people that you think would have, you know, oh, God, I'm going to say it, synergies. <laughs> Buzzwords. Yeah. Uh, how do you get more synergy there? Um, <laughs> we found people that, you know, we thought would suit us and suit our clients. And, you know, in our industry as well, like you have to think about what you want your product to be after you sell. You know, it's all very good and well to get the sale, pay each other on the back, go out and buy yachts narrator there are no yachts you know like (laughs) but you also have to think about the product and if you sell to someone like an amazon or a google or a you know like insert big name company the reality is your product's probably gonna get choked out on the way through the door right we have almost 700 clients that rely on us for all their audio needs and you can't just go thanks everybody this was great two months and then it's gone kind of thing. And so you have to think about that kind of stuff as well. So what was the actual process of going through the acquisition look like? I remember you having a lot of like I basically well. gave up sleep. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I dated a guy once. His dad was in the SAS and his saying was, you can sleep when you're dead. And so I just made that my MO for, you know, get it tattooed okay. on myself along with profit or die, which to all my friends listening, I am going to get done. Um, so... It was, it was a lot of work. It was a lot. I always knew it was going to be a lot of work, but it was a lot more than I could have anticipated. A lot of managing all the different stakeholders around you. But at the same time as making sure the business continues to go forward, not just forward, up, forward and up, you know, because the last thing that you want is while you're running this, for us it was a five-month process, you're running this process and because my focus was on selling the company and it's not on running the company, are you selling as much as you should? Like what mm. happens if your revenue goes backwards one month? Are they not going to want it anymore? And can you circumvent that by making sure that you're talking to those people? Like we were a very small team and we were lucky that, the you know, Triton knew that and we'd had a relationship with them. But, yeah, it was it was, um, it was a lot of work. I'm glad I did it. Something that how many people get to say that they did this? Yeah. You know, I mean, and it was it was phenomenal and it's something that I will – regardless of how much I gave up sleep for, for that time, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Like it was just, it was amazing. So for anyone currently going through an acquisition, I feel maybe your at pain. the start of the process. Have a nap. <laughs> have a nap. That's tip number one. Yeah. What's tip number get two? Get under your desk, get into your <laughs> fetal position. Uh, know who it is that is acquiring you and make sure that you build a relationship with them, if not before, then during, because there are going to be moments where you're going to need their help with things even though they're on the other side and it is, you know, a tug of war. But if you can build a relationship with them, I think that's going to hold you in good stead for after the acquisition as well. So what what's it like after the acquisition? How are Pretty much changed? the same as, no. Okay. Uh, so what's the saying? Same shit, different day. Yep. Uh, no, it is, it for us it was really interesting because it kind of felt like overnight we really a switch had been flicked 
um, and we were suddenly the port of call for a lot of inbound inquiries from people at the company like oh good we've got a podcast team now let's go and you know ask them some questions and you know it's figuring out how to shove a small company into a much larger company I mean who's also putting themselves into a much larger company Mm. at the moment I kind of felt like for a while we were like a puppy that had been bought by by this company and we were you just you're a startup and you move fast and you break things and that's your mentality and you see a point and you just get to it as opposed to a company that probably has a bit more bureaucracy, a bit more checks and balances for good measure because that's what a company does. Absolutely. But you kind of forget that. So we we were, you know, loading up job ads onto Seek and the HR department, you know, reaching out and saying, hey, so you're hiring some people. Great. How can how can we help? We're your HR department now, you know, or um, like, you know, writing a blog post and having a marketing team go, cool, love the blog post. I'm going to need you to send that to us, you know. And so there's a few learning curves, uh, but there's been no buyer or seller remorse so far. We're seven weeks in, so it's going well. It's awesome. Good. Triton, you can help us out with uh, distributing this podcast, right? If you're listening right now and reviewing this podcast, <laughs> thank you in advance. Hi, Brittany. <laughs> so for, for being a CEO of a startup to you're now an MD for a subsidiary mm-hmm. of a large media conglomerate, what has that shift been like for you personally? It's been great. I mean, I I personally felt that, and I suppose maybe this goes back to your question about when do founding teams know when they need to get someone in above them or alongside them. I had reached a point at Omni where we have some of the most amazing developers and people working in the company that I could ever hope for. But when you are the peak of your organization, who do you emulate for management Mm. skills? Who do you learn from? Who do you, how do you move forward in the next level of your career? And that now I have a team of people above and alongside me that they're not so much on the technical point of view. They're more, you know, my tribe of people. And it's been fantastic to go, this is what I'm not good at. You know, this is the things that I need to learn from you and pull that in. So it's been, it's been pretty great. Like we, I can't say that much has changed apart from access to a wider team of people and expertise. What do you think 16-year-old Sharon would think of the Sharon today being, you know, the CEO of a startup that got acquired, who's now a managing director of one of their subsidiaries here in Australia? Yeah, it's pretty nuts. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I always wanted to be, when I, even from a young age, like, I guess other girls were kind of like playing secretary or I have a friend that grew up wanting to be a school bus because, you know, that's a normal thing. And I always wanted to be, you know, this sounds really negative, especially in the light of like today's climate, but I wanted to be a ball-breaking businesswoman. Like that's kind of – and to to have that path kind of have unfolded and from 16-year-old Sharon to now, I don't know, she'd probably say just go out and get the tattoo, you know, profit or die. <laughs> I, uh, I look forward to seeing the tattoo yeah. one day. <laughs> I've made, I've acquiesced with my friends. I wanted to get it on the inside of my right wrist, but then they were like, when you shake people's hands, you're really going to be construed in the wrong way. You're going to leave a so strong impression. So I'm just going impression. to get it on the left hand instead. <laughs> Genius. That's Sharon Taylor for you, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. What an enigma. <laughs> so quickly before we wrap up, what does the future of podcasting look like? And more importantly, what does the future of Omni look like? Yeah, okay. Well, I don't know that Omni is more important than podcasting, but they're synonymous for sure. Mm. So podcasting is incredible. Like I, um, Zoolander, the movie, in terms of, you know, Hansel's so hot right now. Podcasting is so hot right now because it speaks to a mentality and a consumer choice. 
And that is where good businesses and markets unfold, right, is that you're led by the consumer and what the consumer wants you deliver. And so we're time poor, we're hungry for information, we're hungry for good information, you know, we spend more times on our mobile than anything else. So podcasting is a natural audio audio stories, you know, audio documentaries, audio information, audio news, smart speakers being in the home, like podcasting is going to even further explode, you know, and we'll figure out better and better ways to monetize and to deliver experiences and to discover, you know, new shows and new audio content. And so that's really exciting. I think that podcasting is only going to continue to get bigger and better and yeah, a lot of cool things down the down the track. And so that's podcasting and so omni is our job to podcasting is like podcasting is like whitewater rafting and the market and you know the speed of it largely is outside of your control but you need to be able to see three waterfalls ahead and figure out how you're going to like navigate that as well as kind of driving it's a terrible analogy actually now that i've started i'm like I, <laughs> I don't do whitewater rafting i don't know about paddling you can pick another sport it's fine yeah correct yeah uh 10 no i have no idea but but, I mean, the, our job at Omni Studio is to make sure that we, A, keep up with the inevitable demand and the consumer choices because a lot of times consumers are the ones that dictate how they want to discover, you know, new content and so you have to be ready to quickly move into those um, markets and those paths, sorry. Uh, and then otherwise it's thinking, you know, one, two, three years down the track and, you know, being strategic to try and figure that out. So that's that's what's next for Omni, a lot of time and thought going into those things awesome so for anyone out there listening who's doing a podcast or in radio your first stop should be omni studio ah, thank thanks you. sharon for being on a podcast i enjoyed our, our time chatting and uh yeah thank you again for for speaking to us that's today. okay thanks for having me awesome awesome cool thanks, sharon. thanks.